Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Hey folks, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 516 of the Survival Podcast. It is September 23rd. 2010. It is a Thursday, and we're going to talk about peak oil today. I had a different show lined up, all kinds of research done. It's a show I'm going to end up airing on Tuesday next week now. That show is going to be about building personal seed banks. But after interviewing Chris this week, Chris Martinson, who was, of course, our guest on yesterday's show, I have not been able to get peak oil out of my head. And as I talked to Chris... And we have reviewed uh, his materials in advance of the interview and looked at all his facts and figures and graphs. I realized what a great story that he tells, what a great presentation that he gives, uh, how well it can awaken people. But I also realized something else that I knew and I've known, and I'm even going to bring on a blast from the past today. I'm going to bring on a segment of a survival podcast from over two years ago today. Um, well, I guess pretty, maybe right at two years. I'll have to check the date on it for you. But before I even put episode numbers, this is like August or September of 2008. And I'm going to be talking about the Cantrell oil field in Mexico. And we're going to use that today to set the stage for what we're going to talk about. Because what I realized, uh, or re-realized, I guess is the way to say this, is I was talking to Chris and working with Chris on, on this show and the comments and conversation has gone on with his team since, he, since he's done the interview, is out of all the things in the world that people don't get, peak oil is probably the biggest one. The people have the wrong idea of what peak oil is. People, people think peak oil is no more oil. People actually think that peak oil is least, at least, at least a hell of a lot less oil. It's not necessarily the case, and the repercussions and the impacts of peak oil are far bigger than whether or not you can start your car and go anywhere. We'll get more into that in a second. Let's talk today, though, real quick about our housekeeping. As always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday, probably 50 weeks out of the year. I don't take a lot of time off uh, without shows for you guys anyway. When I'm gone, I usually leave a couple behind pre-recorded for you. And uh, sponsor of the day number one is Ready-Made Resources. Check out Ready-Made Resources for everything that you need for your prepping because they have them there. What do you expect? Ready-made and ready to go for you. So uh, check out Ready-Made Resources. You'll find their banner on our website. They have a wonderful catalog on solar and uh, wind energy product. I would download that if I were you. You're going to want to look more into solar and wind um, and I think the catalog just says solar, but it actually has a lot of wind, uh, wind usable gear for wind systems as well in it. The reason I suggest you download it isn't maybe so you download it and then order a $20,000 ready-to-go plug-and-play solar system from them. It's more because I want you to start digging in and seeing how much you can actually create with the sun and how much you have a limitation. And I think the catalog itself is a massive education. I would pay for it. 
if that cat when I first saw that catalog, I realized if somebody had asked me for nine dollars, ten dollars, something like that, and said, "We'll give you this catalog for this uh, in electronic format," I would have spent the money. There's that much information there, so check out their uh, their solar catalog. Next up today is Western Botanicals. In the future, we are going to have to rely less on, on on modern medicine, whether you believe in peak oil or not. What we're seeing is more and more drug-resistant uh, strains of bacteria. We're finding out that more and more of the medications that are designed to cure us are killing us. And uh, the cost of health care is becoming higher and higher in spite of the government's attempt to uh, make it free. It just isn't working out that way. And I believe that we should all take some responsibility for our own health. Now, again, if I get in a wreck and I have a yield spline in my spleen, please take me to a surgeon immediately. If I'm in the middle of a cardiac arrest, I would like to be taken to the ER, please, now. But in a lot of chronic conditions, we can do better for ourselves acting as our own doctors. And I think Western Botanicals is a great place to start in your quest to take control of some portion of your medical uh, and your, 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 your physical health. Uh, I'm not saying you can go cure cancer at Western Botanicals, and I don't think anybody, I think Dr. Kyle Christensen over there would have a heart attack if I said that. He'd probably sue me. But what I am saying is that just like we can become partially self-reliant with our food supply, maybe we can't grow 100% of our own food in our backyard that we need. But if we can grow 20%, we're 20% less dependent. If we can step up and take responsibility for 20 or 30% of our health, that's a dependence that we've reduced. That's a redundancy that we've created. And there could be times when there's no other choice. So the time to learn how to do these things is now. Uh, next up, make sure you connect with us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, please join our forum. Our forum is growing like crazy. Uh, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on forum, go register, sign up for the forum, and start connecting with good people. There's a PhD level of information in that forum on everything and anything you would want to know about emergency planning, preparedness, you name it, it's there. And great people that are looking to help you. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. And remember, episode 550 is going to be a special show. Dial 866-65-THINK and tell me what the Survival Podcast and our community and the people that are part of it have meant for you over the past year or two, how you've changed your life for the better by becoming a prepper, becoming self-reliant and self-sufficient, and not relying on somebody else to solve your problems. Tell me all about it. If you want a good example of what kind of call to make, uh, I'll put a link today into our first year anniversary show, and uh, listen to that one. You can hear the first time we did this, what people did, and I think you'll uh, you'll want to be part of it. Okay, with that, let's get into the show. Uh, again, I want to talk about peak oil today, and I want to uh, I want to set the stage for you with a simple thought, and then I want to play for you this episode uh, that, let me check for you, September 5th, 2008. Before I play the segment for you about the Cantorell oil field from a little over two years ago now, I want to put this thought in your head as you're listening to this and as we go forward today. Peak oil does not really require that we start to run out of oil. It simply requires that we meet a point where we can't produce more and demand continues to rise. That is all it takes. When we reach a point where we have maxed out how much we can extract and refine compared to how much the world's demanding. Think about that. And again, from September of 2008... On the Cantrell oil field, Jack Spearco in the car, bad audio, uh, low quality, low quality recording, but two years ago, and then let's come back and let's look at what's happened since then.
No. We always hear people, you know, mind, grumble, grife, whatever you want to call it, about buying oil from the Arabs. All right? And uh, we do buy a lot of oil from the Middle East. But the top three countries we import oil from, only one is, is uh, Arabic, and that is Saudi Arabia. That's our number one supplier of imported oil right now, is Saudi Arabia. Number two, Canada. Okay? Canada. Number three, Mexico. Mexico's got production problems, folks. And, and what you have to really understand here is, again, it's small little pieces of capacity reduction that have massive impacts on the total volume of oil. In other words, to have oil go way, way up, we don't need to run out of oil. All we have to do is have a 1% shortfall versus capacity and demand. When there's 1% of people trying to get oil or trying to get gasoline, they can't find it because stations are out, gas goes through the roof. All right? That's just how the system works because it's meant to work at peak efficiency. That's how the entire oil industry is built. It's meant to work all out, all the time, full tilt, full bore. So how is this going to be affected? What's going on right now? I'm going to give you one oil field as an example. There's more than one that are doing this, but this is a big one. And this is one that nobody's talking about. There's an oil field called the Cantrell Oil Fields uh, down in Mexico. They're currently running low. How low? Well, they're running low enough that based on just our imports from Mexico, we are now getting 1.2 million barrels less a day from Mexico just due to the decline in this oil field. That's how massive this oil field has been. To put that in perspective for you, a little hiccup in price we have, our price bounced up for a little bit. It's coming back down right away from Hurricane Gustav. Hurricane Gustav didn't damage any of the oil platforms, but it reduced, uh, it shut them down for a few days. So the guys had to get out of there so they didn't get hit by the storm, right? Okay, it cut us off 1.2 barrels, or 1.2 billion barrels a day. But it was temporary. This decline in the Cantrell fields is permanent. Those 1.2 million barrels are never, ever coming back, ever. Capacity has gone down, and it will not recover in that field anyway, okay? Now, when you look at that, you have to say, well, what does this, what does this mean as a whole? Um, let's look at this. Mexico is the sixth largest oil-producing country in the world. Number six in the world. Most people just don't know that about Mexico. Um, and Cantrell produces 60% of Mexico's oil. Say that again. Number six oil-producing country in the world. One oil field produces 60% of their oil. Its production capacity has dropped by 1.2 million barrels a day and is in continuing decline, and it will continue to go down every day from this point forward, and the oil will never come back. They've reached the end of the massive peak production capacity of the Cantrell field. It is gone. And there are other oil fields experiencing the same thing all around the world. But what it means for Mexico is bad because 40% of their real economy... And when I say real economy, I'm saying money that illegal aliens in the United States don't send back to Mexico. 40% of the Mexican economy is oil. And they're having their biggest oil reserve that produces 60% of that economy for them go into a permanent spiral downward decline. You think we have a lot of people coming across the Rio Grande River right now, folks. What happens when that growing middle class in Mexico starts to see the ceiling hit and starts to see decline? All right, so that, that's like another unintended consequence of peak oil. So these are the things that are going on right now. And there's these other oil fields across the, the world. There's giant oil fields in Saudi Arabia that are moving into the same cycle. 
I just bring up Cantrell because it's the latest thing. It's something you think you would hear about. You would think that Dan Rather or David Brinkley or whoever the hell these idiots are now, I don't even pay attention to them anymore. These guys could be retired. Uh, but you would think that they would tell you about things like this. They would tell you that Cantrell's running dry. That the place we get, you know, you know, the third largest importer that we have has its biggest oil field running dry. You'd think they would tell you that, but they don't tell you that. Right? you think they would explain to you that the reason that oil went up is just because there's a billion people in China and India using it, but that China bought an ass load of oil leading up to the Olympics and created a surplus. Do you think they would explain to you that the drop is because they quit buying it because they pulled cars off the road, but they don't tell you any of these things? Okay, again, that was two years ago, and I want to read to you now what has happened to the Cantorell field Since then, I'm reading this from Wikipedia. I'm going to read what the experts were saying in through two, starting in 2004 up through 2008, where I talked about this, and through to to today with what's actually happened. And this is from Wikipedia, and I know it's not the end all source for everything, but this information is accurate. I have verified it. You can find it cited in multiple locations, and the annotations in this Wikipedia article are solid. Okay, so here we go. Production decline. Again, this is the Cantorell oil field, exactly what I was talking about two years ago. Luis Ramirez Cozo, head of Pemex's Exploration and Production Division, announced on August 12, 2004, that the actual oil output from Cantorell was forecast to decline steeply from 2006 onwards at a rate of 14% a year. In March of 2006, it was reported that Cantorell had already peaked with a second year of declining production in 2005. For 2006, the field's output declined by 13.1%, according to Jesus Reyes Herleos, a director general of Pemex. In July of 2008, daily production fell sharply by 36% to 973,668 barrels a day, from 1.5 to 6 million barrels per day a year earlier. So we went from 1.5 million to 970,000 barrels just in 2008. This is right when I was talking about it. Here's the important part. Analysts theorize that this rapid decline is a result of production enhancement techniques causing faster short-term oil extraction at the expense of field longevity. In other words, they're getting better at getting the oil out fast, but that depletes it faster, which makes perfect sense. Here we go. This is really important. By January 2009, oil production at Cantrell had fallen to 772,000 barrels a day, a drop in production of another 38%, resulting in a drop in total oil production, uh, of total Mexican oil production of 9.2%. So the entire country's production dropped by almost 10% in 2009. The fifth year in a row of declining Mexican production. So the sixth largest oil exporter in the world declined its out it hits its production for five years in a row as of 2009 okay in 2008 this is really really key here 2008 Pemex expected Cantrell's decline to continue to 2012 and eventually stabilize at an output of around a half a million barrels a day. So they said, yeah, it's coming down, it's coming down, but then we're going to get to like a half a million barrels, and we're going to stay at a half a million barrels. This thing's long from dead, and it's going to stay that way for a long time. All right. By September of 2009, now they said this in 2008, back when I was saying the stuff we just heard, 
This figure was already achieved by September 2009. That's one year ago, folks. Making one of the most dramatic declines ever seen in the oil industry. Production is now expected to stabilize at 400,000 barrels a day. 100,000 less. So add 100,000 a day up over a few years, and you see that shortfall against projections. The shortfall is having a negative effect on Mexico's annual government budget and its sovereign credit rating. All right. Like I said, I don't want to spend the whole show today talking about facts and figures, but I wanted to look at one place in the world that is significant in its contribution to oil and exports so that the rest of the show would have a little bit more of a dramatic impact on you in authenticity and in reality. What we just watched happen there is one oil field go through peak oil. All right? Oil is going to come out of Cantarell for a long, long time. Years, possibly decades before they just give up and the pumps just shut down and runs dry. There is plenty of oil in the Cantrell field. Plenty of it. What has changed is since the easy portion has been extracted is how much now can come out. And it took decades to get production ramped up to that level. It's not like this thing peaked, you know, in 2004 and they, they, you know, they, they put the first drill in the ground in like 2000 and four years later they're at peak. It took a long time of building the infrastructure and getting it in place so that this oil could reach peak production. And as it ramped up, it just starts sliding down the backside. What Chris Martinson was talking about yesterday, and what I'm talking to you about today, is that is exactly how oil production works. Every single field that's been effectively extracted has gone through the same pattern. It has to. That's how it works. It is a function of the system itself. When I put enough straws in and I pull enough out, the volume begins to decline. The first oil extracted will always be the shallowest oil, the oil that flows the easiest, that needs the least amount of stuff injected down into the ground to help pressurize it and push it out. I don't have to pump salt water down and float it, right? It's the easiest oil. As I continue to extract that at, at the most effective rate I can, because it's all about money for the extractor. I'm not saying that's bad. It's good because the more efficient they are, the less we pay for our fuel, right? But they extract it as fast as they can, as much as they can. I don't care if I have to put it in reserve. I want it out of there. Right? And then I can refine it. And then I can make additional profits. But i got to get the oil out of the ground. Because those machines and those people running those machines cost a ton of money. But eventually, every single field has to do this. And there is a time between when we discover oil and ramping up to that production and then a lag off until it declines on the other side. And that can't be overstated. Here's... Another fact, we are not building many oil refineries in the world today. We're not. And that tells us that even if there's a lot more oil out there than we realize, we still have a production. Oil, when it comes out of the ground, is useless. When it really comes down to it. If you just take it in its raw form, it's not really good for anything. You might lubricate a hinge with it. You know, uh, If it's really good, sweet, crude, you might be able to burn it. You know, but overall, it's not. It's going to burn very dirty. It's going to produce noxious emissions. 
It's going to produce extreme toxins. It's going to burn inefficiently if it burns at all. Some of it won't even, the sour crude, some of that stuff won't even work as heating oil as it is in its, its, its raw form. It has to be refined and it has to be distributed. This is also part of the peak oil issue. Now there's people out there, and somebody's going to put in the comments, but Jack, we know there's abiotic oil, and the earth makes its own oil. Where is it? Where is it? Then why do the, if, you know, how, and here's the other thing, even if it's true, how long does it take? You have talked about fossil aquifers. Let's draw a, a parallel there. There are aquifers underneath the surface of the earth that are like underground oceans of fresh water. Underground freshwater seas, huge reserves. We drill down into them, we pump water out of them. Water is a renewable resource, far more renewable than oil. But once a fossil aquifer is depleted, for all intents and purposes, it's forever. Now, it may eventually refill, but we're talking 50 to 100,000 years. So if oil is even abiotic, you have to ask the question, how long does it take to produce? And if it is... If it's just oozing throughout the earth, why do we drill holes and not find oil where we think oil is? And again, it doesn't matter how much is out there to be found. It matters how much we can find, figure out how to get out of the ground, extract, ship, pump, refine. And everything that we do today and everything that results in either enough oil or not enough oil is based on the current usages on planet Earth for oil and gas and everything that comes from oil. We have two nations, China and India, that want to live the American dream and are damn well going to try to do it, whether we like it or not, and who are we to say they should not? And it is absolutely resource-wise impossible for the percentage of Chinamen or percentage of Indians to own cars that we have in the United States. There's not enough resources to do it. So people would say, well, so it's not going to happen, so why are we worried? Well, because what does it mean if 10% or 20% of a population of a billion or a 1.3 billion or 1.6 billion, some growing to, you know, China's projected population growth eventually hit 2 billion. If you have 20% that didn't own vehicles out of 2 billion, own vehicles, just 20% saturation. All right, well, what do we get out of that? What is it, 400 million? 400 million people? That's more than the entire population of the United States. If India does the same thing, and they do 300 million new cars, 700 million new vehicles on the road, demanding petroleum, 700 million. And that's a low percentage of penetration. The both governments have a vision of that being a bigger number. China has launched 10 automotive companies. And in spite of my prediction, they haven't brought any to America yet. I thought the brilliance would be here by now. One of my predictions I was totally wrong about. It's a beautiful car, by the way. They, 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 they learned to make it by robbing you know, Mercedes-Benz by acting as one of their manufacturers for components and parts of Mercedes. If, they're built, if they have ten, a big 10 automotive in China, who are they building these cars for if they're not exporting them? Chinese people. And again, is it right for us to say that these people shouldn't be able to get in their car and drive to work 
and live somewhere nice instead of stacked on top of each other the way we do. And it, they're not the only nations that are going through this move. Brazil's doing it. Russia's starting to come around to it too. Russia did not have the, the penetration of you know automotive and personal fuel use that, that other nations of its size and stature did. And that's starting to come around. And there are nations all over the place. As China develops Africa, because China is developing Africa at a massive level right now. They're bringing in money, they're bringing in jobs, they're bringing in industry, they're bringing in teachers. And they are looking to Africa as the last undiscovered country, and they're developing it. As that happens, then they're going to create, what do you think they're doing this for? They're going to go to Africa, they're going to mine resources, they're going to create jobs there because they're nice guys? Or do you think they're doing it so they can extract raw materials, increase their underlying equity, pull some of those raw materials back to China, build cars and sell them to the Africans? So you don't want the American car, you don't want the Japanese car, we'll give you a Chinese car. Hey, we're the ones here giving you jobs, and hey, our car's cheaper, by the way. There is an, a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, geez, sometimes the word slips, exponential. There's an exponential growth curve in personal fuel consumption throughout the world. As wealth spreads, and it is spreading, and it's spreading because nations like China realize they can't do everything within their borders anymore. They need more space. When you have a billion plus people, you need more space. And you need more resources. So as they reach out and they develop things in other nations, those economies develop around that. And as this happens and as people move more from dirt poor to something more akin to what we would think of as lower middle class, one of the first things they want is to be able to be mobile. Wouldn't you? How would you feel if I said, you know what, you don't need a car. Let me just take your car away. Well, how about if you never had a car, you can now get to the point where you can finally afford a car, there's finally a car available to you, but you can't have one so that the Americans can drive because we use 25% of the oil. You see what I'm saying? That as nations increase their demand, and we don't increase production of oil at the same rate, even if there's plenty of oil, even if we're running everything maxed out, the demand, the ratio to what's available begins to drop the price begins to increase. And this has all types of unintended consequences. There's something else that goes on at the same time. Right now, let's look at Mexico again. Mexico's production fell for six years in a row. They've produced less oil for six straight years. It's a huge piece of their economy. On top of that, though, Mexico is a highly mobile society. Many Mexicans have vehicles. You know, and again... How are we to say that they should not? And their demand for oil has increased. And if you think of a graph, and Chris does this great, you should watch his at least his segment on peak oil from the crash course. I'll put a link in today's show notes. But what you have are nations that their amount of oil that they use is going up, at the same time the amount they produce is going down. This happened to the United States. This is exactly what happened to us. And once it happened to us, what did we do? Did we use less? No. We, dr we dropped exportation of our own oil to almost nothing. Almost every drop of oil that comes out of the ground in the United States today is used in the United States today. At the same time, we had to increase our imports. It's the only way we could do it. We're not using more than we produce. we got to get more somewhere. We start importing it. 
What happens when a nation like Mexico, when those two lines get really close together? They need more than they're producing. They stop exporting. It doesn't even matter if their production goes flat and goes flat for a hundred years. They're producing, you know, whatever million barrels a day total. And that goes to completely flat. And they're able to sustain that, even if they don't decline. If their usage crosses that line, they stop being an exporter and they become an importer or they become at par. And by being at par is they produce, they use, that's it. They stop the exporting. Another nation that may go through this cycle is Canada. The only hope up there right now is really the tar sands. The, the Russians may go through this same pattern. They're, they're highly likely to. China's the number two importing country in the world for oil now. And they're growing at 8% a year in, in population and in, in economy. I don't think they're actually growing at 8% in population, but their economy's growing at 8% a year. All of these things are unsustainable. We can actually continue to produce a little bit more oil every year. And if demand outstrips its availability, even if we haven't meet the, the classic peak, the effect is the same. The effect is less oil and higher cost. And I don't think most people understand the impact of that. And I don't think most people understand the fact that it will affect every aspect of energy use and food consumption in your life. There is almost nothing that higher oil prices won't make cost more, put in less supply, and, ca and cause more pain out there. Let's look at the one that every, every time I mention electrical rates, people always give me stats. Let me give you the stats myself so you don't send them to me this time. Right, this is just 2006, but hey, it's good enough, right? I mean, we just want to get a ballpark here. Because the point I'm going to make has nothing to do with how much electricity actually comes from oil. Um, total produced by petroleum, and that's going to be petroleum coke uh, and oil-fired boilers, comes out to about 1.3% of our electrical grid is supplied by oil directly as of 2006. About 19% from nuclear, uh, about 12% from combined natural gas, uh, about 49% from coal. And then everything else makes up, you know, one point here, two point there. Natural gas Fired boilers make up another 4%. Uh, 7% is hydroelectric. Uh, combustion turbine generators, 3.6%. Wind power was 0.7%. That's actually a lot higher now. It's getting closer to the 2% range. So when I talk about your electricity, your cost of electricity, and people hear oil prices and electrical prices, they rightly have a knee-jerk reaction. And that knee-jerk reaction is, Well, since we only get about one and a half, two percent of our electricity, when I turn the lights on or turn the stove on or turn the AC on from oil, then oil actually has very little to do with the cost of electricity. Really? I, I mean, I, I almost want to feel like, I, I don't want to be arrogant or anything, but I almost feel like if you ever watch a little cartoon show called Family Guy, and there's a little baby on there that talks, and he's real a smartass, and he says, do you even hear yourself talk? That's my that's my knee-jerk reaction that I try to pull back from and say, let's take a bigger look together and explain this and, and, and figure this out together. Let's say that we're going to look at the fact that over almost half of our energy comes from coal. How do we get the coal out of the ground? Do those big giant trucks they call ukes that are so big that they could run over your car and squish it and not know they ran over you, do they run on oil or do they take some of the coal and shovel it into them like a steam engine? Okay. 
Um, when that coal uh, comes out of the ground, it's extracted by a great big uh, shovel or through shaft mining operations with a bunch of equipment. Does that equipment run on A, a jelly bean field, B, bee power from, from, from bees, C, Martians that beam energy to Earth, or D, petroleum? Okay, Those uh, mining operations are staffed by thousands and thousands and thousands of people who work really hard at very dangerous, uh, low-paying jobs and work their ass off to pull that coal out of the ground. When they get to work in the morning, they go in a car. Are those cars powered by A, tree power, right? B, solar panels, C, natural gas, or D, oil? Once that coal is extracted, it has to go to a thing called a breaker. It breaks the coal up into little pieces. It separates rock out from it, and it classifies the coal into things like anthracite and bituminous because based on different hardnesses, coal burns at different temperatures and has different functions. And once it gets done with the breaker, they have to put it on big trucks, and then they ship it to a place where they burn it to make electricity for you. Do those trucks run on A, hydrogen reactors, B, the sun, D, the grass, you know, or C, grass, or D, petroleum? Every segment in the extraction and distribution of the coal is powered by oil. Nuclear plants, we have to go, it's very expensive and difficult to extract things like uranium and plutonium. And yet thorium, we're going to do this thorium thing, right? But we don't even have one thorium reactor on the drawing board. But every piece of the, every component of nuclear energy uses petroleum. Wind. The windmills get to the middle of the field and are set up by people driving horses, dogs, cats, or cars and trucks burning oil. When we put in a wind farm, we have to put in a huge infrastructure of cables and lines to transmit that energy back to the grid. We have to build new infrastructure that accounts for those windmills don't always spin and they don't always spin at the same rate and their power distribution fluctuates. And when we dig holes in the ground and we dig trenches in the ground with great big trenching equipment and great big backhoes and we do all this backbreaking work to install this new electrical infrastructure... Does the equipment putting it in use fish power, dog power, turnip power, or petroleum? And I'll stop now because I know I'm probably getting ridiculous, but I want to drive the point home. Every aspect of energy use in your life right now hinges upon oil production. Natural gas, the same way. The guys driving the equipment, the, the drills that are going in, Right, The infrastructure being laid, all of it burns petroleum. Without petroleum, we don't get any of the other energy sources either. Once they're up, okay, once the wind farm is up, once the infrastructure is tied in, yes, that windmill will produce over and over and over. And we could even build some truly electric vehicles so that the service techs that go out there use the energy being harvested from the wind turbines to do their annual maintenance. But we got to build it first. Let's look at food. Food doesn't seem directly connected to oil. But let's look at the mat, let's not look at the food you grow in your backyard, because I think you should be doing that. Let's look at food for the mass distribution system and see how much of it hinges on oil that we don't even see. Because we all know 
It has to go on a plane or a boat or a truck or a train to get here, and we're probably burning diesel fuel and or gasoline and or jet fuel to get that done. So we'll accept that. We all know that we have to get in our cars and drive to the store, and that's going to cost us gas. We all know that once it gets to a central distribution point, it gets broken up on a lot of trucks, and that's gas. Right? We all know that the employees that work for the farm, work for the store, all of these people have to use petroleum. In, but let's let all of the obvious go. We got down to the meat counter, and we see all these plastic wrapped pieces of meat. Where does the plastic come from? Oil. We look at all these wonderful plastic bottles. What are they made out of? Oil. A lot of the materials in the store, oil. We need to build a new store. We burn oil. Medicine, oil, we have to transport it. So the medical industry, dependent on oil. Computer industry, we need electricity. We already did that. Every single aspect of your life that provides convenience, comfort, and to some level necessity hinges on one thing, and that is energy. And energy today hinges 100% on oil. And oil production is flattening, and oil demand is increasing, and we are in peak oil right now. This second, we are experiencing the top of peak oil. Now, production might continue to go up a little bit, but demand is going to outpace it. There is no doubt about that. Governments around the world are accepting this now. The Germans just had a report leaked out. The basis, yeah, we're kind of in peak, we're kind of in peak oil now. Huh? We need to figure out what to do. There's some security issues, and uh, right, so it's here now. The next 10 years could have big changes or could have very small changes, but there'll be change. The next 20, I would say the same thing. By that point, we're going to be really feeling the effects of this thing, barring an extreme drop in our population. I mean, that's the, if some kind of pandemic comes in and wipes out 10% of the population and curtails use... We're not going to catch up by using alternative energy. That doesn't mean I don't think we should do it. We should put every windmill we can put in in. You know? We should put in all the geothermal energy sources we can put in. We should be looking at tidal energy sources. We should be doing everything we can with biofuel. You know? Without compromising our food supply. But even all of these things are incremental drops in the bucket. What Chris told us yesterday is if we wanted to go to 100% electric power, in the United States, make all the vehicles plug in electric vehicles. Every bit of heat come from electricity. We're just going to re rely on electricity and get rid of oil. The amount of nuclear plants we would have to build in this country to do just that is 700. And there aren't 700 nuclear plants in the world. There's only two companies that build the equipment to make them. And I've told you before, there's only 3,000 people in the United States that actually have the technical expertise to run one. And you can't have one guy at each plant, folks. you got to have a team of these guys. That know how, now, I'm not talking about the guy that sweeps the floor or even the guy that does the Homer Simpson level work. I'm talking about the operational staff that actually knows how to run it and having a staff big enough with enough redundancy that if somebody, if somebody gets hit on the, on the road on the way home, the plant's not going to be shut down. We're not going to have Chernobyl. Or Three Mile Island, right? Plus we have a problem that we have so many environmental wackos that say they want cleaner energy, but they don't want nuclear plants built. They don't want streams dammed to make hydroelectric power. They don't want windmills put up because it's going to knock a bird out of the air. They don't want solar panels put in the desert because honest to God, honest to, I'm not making this up, 
solar panels in the California desert were blocked because of environmental concerns that it would cause too much shade in the desert. This is the world we live in. A world in which, in the best case scenario, the solutions are not available to 100% fix the problem. And many of the solutions are not being done or are being blocked or both. Because like Chris told us yesterday, there are so many things we could do, right? We could be putting in more wind, but we're not. We could be, you know, developing more solar, but we're not. We take opportunities and we throw them away. Our president and our Congress and our Senate saw fit to blow $800 billion, let's call it because of interest and everything else that's tied to it that they'll lie about, $1 trillion dollars. One trillion dollars gone is a stimulus. About half of which has been spent, and half is what I consider the current president's reelection fund. Because he is going to spend it. He's going to spend the hell out of it in 2011. And there's the potential for your false recovery if it's spent properly. It's going to be the drunk with a credit card that looks like he's doing good. What we could have done with that money is unbelievable. If we actually wanted to solve this problem. I did a couple things about this back when it happened. And here's some of the things we could have done. One is we could have put in enough wind energy. With the cost of windmills and and everything else factored in. To produce about 10% of the energy we gather today from oil. 10% not all, you know, doesn't fix the problem. But it's a big ass dent. And that's not accounting for economy of scale. Here's the real one we could have done. You really wanted to stimulate the economy? You really wanted to do green energy and stuff that was shovel-ready? We could have put a 2-kilowatt solar system at current prices with full installation included on the roof of every single owner-occupied home in America. Every owner-occupied home in America today, just with the stimulus that didn't work, we got nothing out, we've got nothing from the stimulus. By the way, I, if you're a new listener, I was pretty pissed off at all the money that George Bush blew to in the financial bailout. I'm not on either camp politically here. I'm just saying, with that one expenditure, we could have made every home in America produce a two kilowatt load of its own energy. Every single, now this isn't apartments, and this isn't places where people are acting as landlords. This would have been if you lived in your home, It was 130 million homes or something like that I figured out, or 111, whatever it was. And I did the math, 2 kilowatts. Now, what that would have done to the solar industry would have been unbelievable. The economy of scale. I'm not saying we should have done it. I'm just saying if we're going to spend a trillion dollars, maybe we should get something out of it. And the bigger lesson is not what we should or shouldn't have done. The, your government, the people in charge that say they care about this, that want to create a new tax based around energy, Cap and tax, which is what it is. It's not cap and trade. It's cap and tax. They're going to tax us, and the big guys are going to use it as a trading scheme to make money. When even the crisis presents itself that creates the opportunity in the eyes of our government to do something, what they do doesn't fix problems. And that means we're on our own. We have to deal with these situations ourselves. And we have to look at more than just will we be okay for the next 10, 20, or 30 years. There's people out there that are 50 
And if, hey, if everything's going to hold together for three decades, I'm going to be 80. I'm going to be old. I'm going to let old folks. I don't care. We have to start thinking about the fact that we're going to leave people behind. We're going to leave children behind to this and grandchildren behind to this. And it's up to us now. Not so much. We cannot, folks. You and I can't stop this. If every single person that listened to this show was able to get five more families to listen to this show, and all of us reduced our energy consumption, put uh, solar panels on our roofs, did everything we can to live a low-impact, low-energy-usage uh, environment, we wouldn't make a tiny dent on this problem. So why do it? Because it's better for us. Because it's the solution for us. When we start creating independence for ourselves with food, with money, with energy, with everything, then as the problems occur, we suffer less. We're prepared for the change before the change occurs. And it is all things. It's not just, I know today's about peak oil, but it's not just about peak oil. It's about everything. Um, I have a big announcement today. I put it out on the blog yesterday. Gary Vaynerchuk is going to be on the show in March. And um, I think most people are really happy about this. And Gary, for those that don't know, is an entrepreneur. And he started out doing a podcast um, right around maybe a year before I started TSP on wine. And just different varieties of wine and things. And he's kind of a little freak, really, the way he, you know, little skinny guy. He's all excited. I mean, he makes me look calm. You know, and uh, he built that, and now he does a lot with other people on how to how to build, you know, corporate brand, personal brand, everything from the small individual to this guy's working with the New York Jets. He's working with the National Hockey League now as a consultant, and he's going to come on. He's going to talk about building personal brand as a method of creating self sufficiency. And one commenter said, come on, why don't we just bring, and he mentioned some guy that was like a rock star. I never heard of the guy before, but let's say it was, you know, Paul McCartney. Why don't we bring Paul McCartney on to tell everybody how to be a rock star? Gary's one of a kind, you know. It has nothing to do with a survival topic. My hairy ass. Let me just put it to you that way. The reason I'm bringing this guy on to talk about personal brand, we are going forward going to have to take care of ourselves, the American corporate dream is dying. And it's dying faster and faster on an exponential downward curve every day. Job security, gone. Pensions, gone. Long-term employment, gone. Climbing the corporate ladder, dying. Not gone, but dying. The resume, dying to dead. How many of you looking for jobs have sent out a thousand resumes and gotten nowhere so far? Survivalism, self-sufficiency, self-reliance in our day and age is not about simply the shit hitting the fan. It's about us. It's about us as individuals and it's about us having a quality to our lives. Not just a quantity of years, but a quality of meaning. And as long as we live in a world where there is any semblance of an economy... Some portion of an income is required. And you can either be a corporate stooge where you think everything's super and okay until you get the call one day, or you can take responsibility for that as well. 
That's why I'm bringing a guy like Vaynerchuk on. That's why I've done one or two shows about building a business, being self-employed, having your own personal brand. Personal brand is not just about your own business. If you're going to be an employee, then you want to be known by 20,000 people as the best damn PHP programmer, developer there is. You want to be known as innovative, creative, and you want people with similar identities to identify with you. You want people that have the empower to employ you waiting for you to get fired. Praying to God you get fired so they can make you an offer. And the economy changing is a big part of the solution to peak oil. We are seeing right now a massive decoupling of the need for an employee to go to work and sit down at a desk to do their job. Because most jobs today can be done from home. And not just computer jobs. There's many jobs that are you might use a computer, but it's like using a phone. And every time we take one person and they don't have to drive to work and back every day, that's a hell of a lot better than them just buying a more fuel-efficient hybrid car. Because instead of using less fuel, they're using none for that same expenditure. We still need electricity. We still need energy. So that's why I'm bringing a guy like Gary on. And that's why if we're going to look at peak oil, we have to realize it's not just about cars. And it's not just about gasoline. And it's not even just about electricity. It's about every single facet of your life. And what that means is you should be doing everything you can today to create some portion of redundancy and self-reliance in every single facet of your life. There has never been a community, a citizenship, a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I got word, it's missing today. Civilization is the word I was looking for. There's never been a single civilization in the history of the world that wasn't energy dependent. From the first of our, our ancestors that figured out how to make fire by friction forward. Every time more than, you know, people living like monkeys in the, in the woods before we created societies. From that point forward, every civilization, every society, every village, every family has had energy dependence. Every single one. We are not different than them. In fact, we are in many ways worse off than they are. People that were always dependent on chopping down wood for heat and light and cooking were pretty resilient. As long as you can find something else to burn, you were okay. We've gone to an on-demand world today, and we've become decoupled and disconnected from that. And it is more important that we start doing things like producing a portion of our own energy so that we comprehend and understand how difficult it is and how limiting it is than just to relieve the problem, to take pressure off the problem. Peak oil is not going away. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we're not in it yet. But understand, understand this if you take nothing else from today about peak oil. We could be in peak oil for 10 years with nobody really able to know it or admit it. And certainly with it being hidden. And if certainly with the effect not being heavily felt. The effect isn't felt when everything is in balance. But as long as it remains in a balance that's level, that's not growing concurrently with each other, we have a danger that if production drops even a percent, or demand rises even a percent, and the other side's not able to compensate, then the effect is felt. 
It's just like we were in a recession for a long time with everybody saying, no, we're not in the stock market. Everything was okay. A few people lost some jobs. A few people lost some homes. But it wasn't really a recession. And then one day somebody went, holy crap, it's a recession. And everybody panicked. And everything fell apart. And people lost jobs overnight because the employer heard it was a recession, so they scaled back because they knew it was coming now. This is how peak oil can hit us. It's when it's admitted. And when we start having a government like the Germans, pretty smart people, leaking a document that kind of sort of says that already. We're getting close to where the world altogether looks at it and acknowledges it. And I'll tell you why they don't want to acknowledge it. It's not because it's not real. It's because they know what the effect is. There's a reason it's being hidden. And it's being hidden for a lot of reasons. I think the Saudis have a greater decline than they've ever admitted. They don't have anywhere near the reserves they claim anymore. But you would think, well, why wouldn't they admit that? Because that would drive the price of oil up and they could sell what they have left. Because the more the world becomes in touch... The more we become in touch with the reality that we are going through a peak energy crisis and a peak resource crisis overall, the more we will develop ways to use less and develop alternatives. And eventually, what happens to oil is instead of becoming very, very expensive, it becomes very, very cheap. Because we realize it is a losing play long term. And that we can only use it for certain specific things. And that we need to adjust our lives in ways that make us independent from it. A very painful, very dangerous period of time. But once done, it decouples the dependence to a large degree. And none of these nations want that to occur. Because nations think today like corporations. They think about tomorrow, not next year. You know, and they do think about next year a little bit, but they think next year way more, way more than they think five years. And there's very few nations that are really forward looking out ten years. Our nation, the furthest looking we're ever out, is about five. That's a current president looking to his reelection in his second term. Can survive there, we'll deal with that when we get there. This is the reality you live in today. It's up to you what you do about it. My my message I want you to become more self-reliant and put more redundancy in your life in every aspect. I want you to focus on energy, but I want you to really realize energy is a tool. And I want you to look at your life and I want you to assess it and I want you to realize how many other things in your life are enabled by energy. And I want you to realize that the more independent you become now, even if the crisis is 30 years away, the better off your life is today. The quality of your life can go up with your let's say, lifestyle quotient going down based on the way the rest of the world looks at it. We don't need as much as we think we do. Last night, I'll give you one more kind of analogy that seems off base here. But I think it'll help frame it if we, if you, if you just look at it for what it really is. My wife and I like to watch uh, a show called House Hunters, and specifically a show called House Hunters International, where people are generally buying a home outside of the United States. Not always Americans, sometimes it's, uh, Brits in, in Europe, but a lot of times it's Americans. In this case, it was an American couple, and they were looking for a vacation home in Ecuador. And they were able to buy, uh, condominium, close to 2,000 square feet, on the coast, for about $140,000, which I was even like, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. 
They didn't like the cabinets, and the cabinets weren't falling apart. They weren't ugly. They were just kind of plain Jane white painted cabinets, and they definitely wanted new cabinets. And the guy said, hey, down here you can get this done for $2,500. And based on their budget, that wasn't a lot of money. And, I mean, you're talking about a cabinet job that might cost $20,000 in the United States, $2,500 down in Ecuador because of labor rates and local materials and all this stuff. And she was like, but I don't, I don't, I don't know who's going to oversee the construction project. And we just have to, if we're going to buy this house, we just have to get this done. You know, and they're going to use it for a vacation home. And these people weren't really wealthy or anything. They're from Chicago. They seem like, you know, typical upper middle class people. And, uh, the guy traveled a lot with his, with his work and he had been to Ecuador quite a bit and that's why he picked the country. So I think he's maybe down there for business and it'll be good for him to have a place down there. So no, no fault of them for spending their money however they choose to, including buying a real estate on the coast in Ecuador. Good for them. But my thought was, you can't live with white cabinets in a vacation home? You gotta have a, a, a home built to the, the, the way that people would, would die to have? Because this, this place in America, folks, was a million dollars. Anywhere on the coast in America was a million dollars. This place in, you know, in Chicago or Atlanta, where it's not on the coast, was a half a million dollar place. It was really nice, but they couldn't stomach the cabinets. Because they were white instead of natural wood. For a place they're going to spend maybe two weeks a year in, two or three times a year. Can't stand white painted cabinets. This is the, and I, I don't mean to beat these people up, but this is the mentality that not just Americans, but everyone in the developed world, because when I watch this show and it's Europeans, they're the same way. We've been pushed into this, this, this worldview. Where things have to be our way. The other thing I learned from this, and I saw this when I traveled in the military, people leave their country and go completely to another country and then bitch when everything's not the same. Complain. Well, I don't like that. And why is it like this here? And at home we have central air, and here they have, you know, individual units. And uh, well, I'm going to have to share this pool with somebody else. And uh, if you don't want change, why are you going? 5,000 miles crossing multiple international borders if you want everything to be the way it is where you're at. What that teaches us is how resistant to its minor changes in lifestyle. Because all of these places I've seen would be beautiful. There was a couple of them where they, you know, like they show you three houses and the guy bought one and like one of the other ones, I'm like, man, I should, the one there was one in Costa Rica. I'm like, I should see if that second one's still available. I can move there right now, live there the rest of my life with permaculture out the butt, happy as a lark. And they didn't like it because it was, you know, it was up a big hill. It was up a big hill. You're, you're going to the mountains of Costa Rica and you don't want to drive up a big hill to get to your house? This is what we're dealing with. And it's going to hurt when you have to make decisions because the resource isn't there or the cost of the resource is beyond your capacity to live the same lifestyle. Thermostats will be turned higher in winter or higher in summer and lower in winter in the coming years because of cost. People will drive less because of cost. It's going to happen. And it's going to cause a ripple effect and coupled with all of the other things like inflation, 
It's going to make things tough. And you need to realize that you live in a nation of over 300 million people and the vast majority of them are 100% unprepared for what's about to occur. And that's going to make it tougher for all of us. But you know the reality. And you know that we don't have to... Today, if you haven't before, you should know now. We do not have to run out of oil. We don't even have to have a lot less. We only need a little less and a little more demand to throw the entire system into utter chaos and cause financial, economic, health, and food repercussions throughout the entire globe. Not the end of the world as we know it, but the end of the lifestyle that we've become accustomed to is a God-given right as we know it. We don't have a right. We don't have a God-given right to a four-bedroom house and a 68-degree temperature. If you want to go out and work for it, that's fine. But we're getting to the point where even the people that are willing to work for it, it's not going to be there. And what it's going to do to society may not be catastrophic, but it is going to be painful. Like Chris says, it's going to be like going down a straight road for thousands of miles at high speed and not seeing that one big right-hand turn that's coming up and you have to make the turn. It cause a lot of problems when we get to that turn. The turn's coming. Be prepared for it. Build the self-sufficiency in your own life. I hope you have a new view of peak oil today and, and see it as peak energy and understand that it's also peak resources. It's everything else. It's water. You know? It, it's it's topsoil. It's farmland. It's everything we depend on. And energy is the catalyst that ties it all So build that self-sufficiency in your life. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. For you, if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for